Hey, this is Jared Wellman. I'm the lead pastor at Tate Springs, and this is our podcast. God is telling a story of hope and redemption. Hope and redemption. Redemption that can only be found through Jesus Christ. I hope that this is a blessing and inspires you to discover your part in God's story. Go ahead and take your copy of God's Word with me and turn to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. And as you're doing that, let me ask you this question. Have you, have you ever Googled yourself? Have you ever Googled yourself? You know you have. You know you have. Uh, <clears throat> I have sometimes. And, you know, I did that this, this summer uh, after May 1st. And, uh, and it, was not a really, it was not a really good uh, experience, just like I, I, I knew it wouldn't. Because when I Google myself, and some of you are saying, I can go ahead and Google pastors here. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> It, the, the word that shows up right now for me is the word rejected. And, and so it, it, it's, it's the word rejected. And so that's the legacy of Jared Wellman on, uh, on Google. And uh, you know, when I think about that word, I'm, I'm gonna be vulnerable with you this morning. That's just about the worst thing that for me, the way I'm wired, that's just about the worst thing that, that could happen. I'm a very private person. You know that about me after going on seven years here. I just tend to, to not like talking about myself, things like that. And so when, when you really put yourself out there and you think, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm really gonna follow you. Um, Psalm 44, talks. Uh, the authors talk about uh, how they became a laughingstock. That's, that's how I feel. That's how, that's how I felt. And so it's really just kind of the, the worst thing that, one of the worst things I can imagine. And this, Tate Springs, is why Psalm 90 saved me this summer the text before us today, Psalm 90. It summarizes what the Lord has taught me. And here's the sermon in a sentence. The person of God is enough. The person of God is enough. What do I mean by that? I wanna put some emphasis on the word person before we, ju- before we jump in, before we dive in, because so often I think we confuse the person of God with activity for God. And so if we just think for a minute about how we find our identity and how we find our value and how we impress the Lord with all the things that we're doing in our life, it's not God himself that, that we think of. What do we think of? We think, especially for pastors and preachers, we tend to think about all the things that we're trying to do for God. So we confuse the person of God with activity for God. And so Psalm 90 gives us a response to this and it gives us some insights into what it means to have a relationship with the Lord. So let's go ahead and read these verses. Just follow along. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains, which by the way, verse one is the thesis. Lord, you, you are our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting To everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and you say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You've swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. And in the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew. And in the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath, we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. Some of us, that's how we feel in life. We just feel like life is 
is just a groan. Verse 10, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us, Lord, to number our days that, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. And make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we've seen evil. And let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. And let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, how glorious it is to be in, in your house, in your place this morning with your people. I'm grateful, Lord, for your loving kindness and for your grace, for your thoughtfulness. And I thank you for Psalm 90. What a, what a wonderful psalm. Lord, I pray that the things you've been carrying me through in my life, that you would use those for your people, for edification for all of us. We need one another, and most importantly, we need you and we reside in you. So Lord, carry us through these next moments together as we let your word do the work that it's intended to do in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. First thing we need to note here is how Moses shows us that the Lord himself is our dwelling place. The Lord himself is your dwelling place, the person of God. I want you to notice, I want you to notice that this is a prayer of Moses. When Dr. Creamer was here a few weeks ago, he said, you know, uh, the beginning, the introduction of the author of the Psalm is actually part of the Psalm. So before we even dive into verse one, we, we, we kind of need to spend a, just a few seconds on what it means that the prayer is of Moses. This is a prayer of Moses that has been recorded for you and for me. And he is described as the man of God. You know, Moses' life was one of journeys. The Bible portrays Moses' life in three sections of 40 year periods. And so it was 40, 40, and then 40. And those break down into themes. And so the first 40 years of Moses' life is really when he was a prince in Egypt. And you'll remember he was placed in this basket and he took a journey down the Nile River until he was adopted by Pharaoh's family. Uh, and then the second 40 year period was when he was a shepherd in Midian because as he grew up, he saw some, a couple of individuals fighting and he, and he killed one of them and had to flee. And so now he is a shepherd in Midian. And then he counters at the end of those 40 years, this, this burning bush or what I like to call the unburning bush, which... Uh, is God and he sends him, God's presence is there and he sends Moses off back to Egypt. And what does he do there? He takes the Israelites and he goes on a journey with them for 40 years until he dies. And so 40, 40, 40, it is a, it, it's a theme of Moses's life. He is a man of journeys. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt nomadic in your life. Now, many of us, this is a generational church. And so there have been Sunday mornings where we have four generations present here. It's a beautiful thing. So I'm not necessarily talking about nomadic uh, where, where you, you've moved here a few months ago and maybe you'll move a few years from now, which by the way is one of the hardest things being a pastor is getting to know people and, and, and then the Lord carries them. And, and that's, that's part of life, 
Well, we, we, we take journeys. It's just the way it works. God puts us in different, different places. I'm talking about a, an emotional thing or, or, or maybe even a spiritual thing where if you were just to kind of sit and evaluate your life, you would think to yourself, you know, Pastor Jared, I really don't know if I've, I've ever really been where I really want to go. I just feel like I've always been on this journey. I've really never got to that place that's kind of back there in, in my mind and in my, my heart, maybe even in my soul where I really believe the Lord might be taking me. I just kind of feel nomadic, like I'm constantly on journeys. Listen, Moses knew that more than anybody. His whole life was like that. He was constantly on a journey. And then by the time he got to the end, he wasn't even able to walk into the destination. There's something to be said about that as it colors what he's saying here in his prayer. And the point is this, through geographic and generational changes. Remember, Moses saw generations pass away. Through geographic changes and generational changes, here's what Moses says as he opens up his psalm. Are you ready? He says, Lord, you are the constant. You have been our dwelling place. Now, it has been a few months, and I'm sure that not everyone who has come and and spoken has kept up the quota on Lord of the Rings references. So I have to catch up. So in, uh, in, the, in the Lord of the Rings lore, and all of the, and it's not just those three books, there's The Hobbit and a whole bunch of other books, but there's a character, and even if you've not read the books or seen the movies, or if you don't care anything about Lord of the Rings, first off, I'll pray for you, but if you don't care anything about, about that story, I want you to, to think about this character that you've probably heard of named Gandalf. And so Gandalf is this character that is just there. He's just there and, he, and he's this presence, this constant presence throughout all of these different books. And so in The Hobbit, he's there in the beginning and he, he puts a mark on, on Bilbo's door and all these doors show up. And he's really the one who's kind of putting together this fellowship uh, to walk and traverse on this journey to go and take back the mountain that, that the dragon is now residing in. Gandalf was the one who put that together and then guided them and walked with them and was there for them. And then some years later, maybe 20, 30, 40, years later after that Hobbit book, you have the, the Lord of the Rings books and, and there's Gandalf again and he's very present and he's putting together this fellowship of the ring and he's just there. And when you do the math, um, it's like 2000 years that this character is alive and he's just constantly there. He's the constant in all of these stories. And so this is the kind of foundation that Moses is laying for us when it comes to this psalm because what he wants us to know is that the person of God is the constant in this chaotic world that we're living in, in which we're all kind of traversing on these journeys towards our own proverbial lonely mountains with whatever kind of dragon that we feel like we need to slay. God is the one who is constantly there. He transcends our journeys and what's more, our journeys properly directed fit into him. And this is the second thing that we wanna see because what he does in the rest of the Psalm is this. He tells us how this is possible that the person of God is enough. And then he tells us what it means for us. So here's the second point. The person of God is enough because God is eternal. The person of God is enough because God is eternal. Look with me at verse two. Before the mountains were born, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Some years ago, when I was in the Middle East, we had the opportunity to go to Israel and Egypt and, and Jordan. And uh, from Amman, Jordan, we were traveling south on Highway 65 <clears throat> and, uh, to Taba, Egypt. 
And as we were doing that, we were hugged by these mountains uh, called the Sharaw Mountains. And the tour guide picked up his microphone and he said, I want you to look to your left out of the window and I want you to look to your right out of the window. He said, these are some of the oldest mountains on the planet. He said, then he, he, he pressed it further and he said, these are the foundation stones of creation. And I had my journal Bible with me and I was reading Genesis 1 at the time. I was just thinking through Genesis 1 for whatever reason. And it just, man, it was a powerful moment because I looked at these mountains and I just began to think uh, about all of the, the different things and the different epochs in human history that these mountains had probably witnessed, just very old mountains. And then I look at Psalm 90 this summer and I read the words, before the mountains were born, before these mountains existed, you are God. And he says it a little bit more poetically. In, uh, at, the, at the end of the verse, he says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In Hebrew, this is men olam va'ad olam, which commentators say is the strongest way to express eternality. The strongest way to express eternality. And so it's qualifying the word eternal with the word eternal. So uh, right before service started, I bumped into Zach, uh, Prince in the hallway, and he said, welcome back. He said, well, you know, you've been back, but, but welcome back. And so what he was saying was, you're back back. You're qualifying the word back with back. Or it, so if you're trying to qualify a big, powerful word, one of the, the, the most rhetorical ways to do that is to use the same word to do that. And so to say uh, it's vast is to say it's vastly vast. If you wanna uh, qualify pure, you could say it, it, it's purely pure, pure purity even. And so that's what, the, that's what Moses is, is doing here. And so he wants us to understand something. He wants us to understand that if you were to take the timeline of human history, and so over here on this side of human history, imagine this uh, imaginary timeline, you have day one of creation. In the beginning, God said, and now time begins. All right, the mountains, the trees, everything, so on and so forth. You go all the way to the end of, of human history, and over here, you have the last day of creation. And so you have all of human history, the whole timeline uh, right here, everything that's ever happened. Man walking on the moon, um, all the wars, uh, your birth, uh, just, just everything that's ever happened right there in that timeline. What Moses is saying is, is, is this, that if you go over here off the grid, you have the eternal God just always existing. He's just, he's just transcendently above all of human history. And so before the Shirah Mountains, existed or any other mountain range or any person or anything is just the eternal God. And so what's more for us is that he has always existed and will always exist and he transcends time and that is why time exists in the first place. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means that everything that happens, this is where the rubber meets the road partially here, is that it means that every single thing that happens within human history, within this timeline that God has created, finds its purpose within the eternal God who transcends it all, who encompasses it on uh, it all. This is how we stay sane in life. Because if you remove the eternal God from the equation and all you have is the timeline with all the crazy things that happen, we would lose our sanity because suddenly there's no meaning or purpose in life. 
So it helps us to begin to understand what, what really truly matters. Now, Russell Moore is a, is, a, is a follower of Jesus who has written a new book called Losing Our Religion. Now, some of us know who Russell Moore is. People have strong opinions about, about him because he was Southern Baptist. I just want you to listen to what he says in this new book called Losing Our Religion. He was Southern Baptist. He became an entity leader and then, uh, and then no longer is even Southern Baptist because of differences of, of opinion with those of, of like Christian faith. And so he writes this book that talks about what it's like to have gone to Sunday school classes and be taught things um, about ethics and morality and, and to sit in services and be taught all these things and to then to serve and then to become the president of the ethics committee of the convention and then to talk about ethics and, and then to go through the things he went through with that. And he has this quote that in this book that I thought was pretty profound and it's this. He says, sometimes... Becoming accidental exiles is itself a grace. It can give us the distance to see what matters and what doesn't. In other words, when you're displaced out of whatever you found meaningful, whatever, whatever thing in this timeline that you have attached yourself to and you said, this is what gives me value, this is what gives me purpose, this is what gives me meaning. And when you're displaced out of that, when we stop to think about how our timeline fits into God's eternality, what happens is this, it helps us to begin to glean what truly matters because we have been kind of jolted out of the thing that we've really tried to begin to find our value and identity. And so when we're displaced, God is not displaced, in other words, for he's eternal. He himself is the immovable bedrock in which time is planted. This is the second point, that the person of God is enough because God is eternal. Now here, here's where this begins to, to, to kind of, be applied in our lives. The third and final point that the person of God is enough because man is temporal. So God is eternal, man is temporal. So now that we know how it's possible that the person of God is enough, what Moses wants to do is talk about what happens inside that timeline. Because theoretically we understand that as followers of Jesus, but what about when these really big things happen in our life that displace us? What does it mean for us? Well, here's what Moses does. He, he helps us to understand this by comparing you to God, by comparing me to God, by comparing man to God. What you notice in verse three, where he says that, he says, you turn man, you turn man back into dust, turn man. I want you to notice the placement here. By the way, when you are studying the word of God, it's not merely what the, the word is saying, but how God is telling us. So like the Lord's prayer, there's a purpose to how Jesus teaches us to pray to the flow. You notice that we declare the holiness of God and, and who God is before we get to the point of, of asking for daily bread and asking even for forgiveness of sins because he precedes that. It's not, it's not us who precedes the holiness of God. And the same thing is true here. So after Moses unpacks the eternal God, the e eternality of our eternal God. He, he even says the one who not only is eternal, but the one who created the earth and the world. Look there in verse two, or you gave birth to the earth and the world. The word earth refers to the physical planet itself, the, the ground and the soil. And the word world there refers to, to society that's placed on that. And that's really important because ultimately what he wants us to get here is, is the idea of, our place in his creation. And he presses the point in verse three when he says, you turn man back into dust and you say, return, O children of men, 
So it's not only that we are men and women, it's that we are children of men and women. So it's another step removed in other words. Let me, let me illustrate what, what he's saying here. So um, as a father of, of four little kids, we watch a lot of VeggieTales in, in our house. And in and, and one episode, I think it was VeggieTales or something uh, like it, but there was this silly song that came on. You may have heard it. And the song went something like this. It talks about, I'm not gonna sing it um, because I can't sing, but the, there's, there's this hole in the bottom of the sea. And then they say, there's a hole, there's a hole, there's a hole in the bottom of the sea. And then it goes on and on. And, and they talk about the hole for a long time. Then they say, there's a log in the hole in the bottom of the sea. There's a log in the hole in the bottom of the sea. Go on and on. And then it says, there's a frog on the log in the hole in the bottom of the sea. A frog on the log in the hole in the bottom of the sea. You see where this is going? Then there's a wart on the frog on the log on the bottom of the sea, in the hole in the bottom of the sea. Then there is a fly on the wart on the uh, frog, on the log, in the hole, in the bottom of the sea. Then there's a flea on the fly, on the wart, on the frog, on the log, in the hole. You're pretty impressed that I remember so much. I'm kind of like, whoa, I'm remembering it. <laughs> then there's a smile on the flea, on the fly, on the wart, on the frog, on the log, in the hole. And it's just this ridiculous song. I don't know if you've seen those infinite zooming art uh, on social media where someone has a picture. Uh, so just imagine this picture, even the, the little mountains at the bottom. And what if you zoomed into one of the little uh, spots and there was a whole other thing going on, a whole city. And then you zoom into a window in that city and you zoom in and it's just constant, infinite zooming art. It's pretty impressive. Uh, it's the idea that if you zoom all the way out, you can kind of keep zooming all the way in. That's kind of the idea that Moses is giving us here. He wants us to understand something. He wants us to understand the reality of our life. He wants us to understand that, that we are children of men, of men in earth or in the world, in society, on earth. And the implication is in the solar system, in the galaxy, in the universe, with the transcendent God, eternal God. So we are, we are just so many steps removed that, that if you look, if you were to zoom out, earth would look something less than a tiny marble and we would be something less than ants. And, and so you, you, we hear this and we think to ourselves, what does this mean? This is pretty depressive, Jared. It's really not. It's actually pretty amazing because we typically view all the things that are happening in front of us as the biggest thing in the whole wide world. The biggest thing. You know, all oh, the milk went sour in the fridge. This day could not have started worse. And, and to be fair, there are some really big things that happen in life. Just even this morning, talking to some of us who have been diagnosed with, with cancer. I mean, those are really big things. I'm not trying to, to say those things aren't big. They are, but at the same time, when you, when you understand the context of what Moses is praying here, here's the, the good news. They're big things, but they're actually small things. Moses, he, he begins to talk about years. Let's, let's continue to press this point because Moses does. This is why Moses begins to talk about years. Let's read verses four through six again. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night, you've swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep and in the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew and in the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and weathers away. This morning, we had this rain a couple nights ago. In the morning, there's just so much dew on our grass. It just looks amazing. But in the end of a three digit hot Texas day, it's just dry and parched and it feels like hay. 
And, and, and so what he wants us to understand here is that we view our lives and our years very differently than God does. And that's a very good thing. It's not only not a bad thing, it's a good thing. Because the moment that we begin to think that our timelines are separated outside of the context and of an eternal God, yes, these things are big and they're meaningless and they're pointless and, and that's just the way it is. But Moses wants us to understand that God is still there and he's still viewing our years and he views them very differently. And so the point here is to stress the temporal nature of man by giving metaphors that illustrate not only that life is temporal, but also that it is futile apart from God. Apart from God. Here's, here's how he does this. Look at verse three again. You turn man back into dust. The implication is that we came from dust, which is what Genesis 2, 7 tells us, that God took the dust that he created and that he made man, breathed life into this dust. You know, when I think of the word dust, I think of um, that useless stuff that just kind of collects on our shelves. And we just kind of, we can take our finger and, and draw on it. Sometimes on the back windshields of our car and and we can draw little pictures because the dust is just there. I drove to East Texas over the weekend and there's just a bunch of dust and bugs now, just this stuff that's just kind of all over my vehicle. You can't really repurpose dust. You know, you remember some years ago when pallets were being repurposed? And so people were taking pallets and, and repurposing them into benches and wall art and staged direct, uh, decorations and things like that. You can't do that with dust. There's, a, uh, there's a, a self-proclaimed trash artist named Tom Denninger. And I have a couple pictures I wanna show you on the screen. And, and so you really can't tell from a distance, but if you were to take these pictures and hold them up close, you would see that they are made from little pieces of plastic. Uh, some of them even have little action figures in them. So like in the, in the right wing of the hummingbird is an action figure. You can't really see it. You can kind of see his arm and his yellow torso. But what Tom does is he walks on the beach and he finds discarded plastic and, and he puts them all in these bins. And so he's got a bin of blue plastics and yellow plastics and green plastics and, and he repurposes these things and he turns them into these works of art and then he sells them. He repurposes them. And, and, and you can do that with so many things, but you can't do that with dust. You can't go into your house and collect all the dust and then find a way to repurpose it and make thousands of dollars. You can't do it. No one's gonna buy your dust. No one wants it. But you know who wants it? The Lord does. The Lord does. It's, it's quite profound. Moses' point is this, the most worthless thing you can imagine in his creation. You're all the way back here, the eternal God who creates the universe, that has the solar system, that has... Uh, the planet that has people who make people. And God's way back here and he's looking and he's peering down and he sees these little microscopic creatures that he's made. And he does something. He, he takes his breath and he just breathes into that dust and suddenly the most worthless thing in all of creation becomes the most valuable thing. I don't know about you, but that means everything to me. It means everything to me. Because even though that we are dust, and even though we're like grass that is here today and fades tomorrow, the implication is that the only thing, the only thing 
that gives man value is not you. You don't make your life valuable. It's God who does. Your life is already valuable because you were made by God, repurposed dust that has his breath in your lungs and apart from him, that's all we are is worthless dust. And this is the point that dust finds its value when we put it into the proper context, which is understanding our lives in, within the timeline of God's creation. So here's, here's where, all, where all this is going as we get ready to wrap up. Moses, he gives us two pathways, all right, two pathways. So just kind of looking in the balcony down here, those of us tuning uh, in online, a couple of different ways to look at this. The first one is, uh, is this. It's that if you decide that, that your life is just kind of this timeline that's just existing accidentally and you really don't care about the idea of the eternal God transcending it, then, then here's what Moses says is in store for those, starting in verse seven. He says that the anger of the Lord is waiting for those. The anger of the Lord is waiting for those. The wrath of the Lord in verse seven is waiting for those. He, he talks about toil and trouble waiting for those. In verse 10, he says, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 or if due to strength, 80. And so in other words, you can, you can work hard and you can get 70 years out of this thing and say, I don't need God. And you can maybe even squeeze another decade out of life. But you know what? For soon it's gone, he says. And you know what's not? The wrath of God, it's still waiting there for those who decided that they would not honor the Lord as Lord. And so that, that's one thing. And so the reason for that is because whether we believe it or not, God is eternal. And so we can act like he's not, but that's not gonna change the fact that he is. But here, here's where he wants this to go. This is his prayer. And it's this, verse 12. It is, so Lord, in light of the fact that you are eternal and we are temporal, teach us to number our days so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. This is one of the key verses in all of this Psalm. And to unlock what it means, we have to understand what he means when he says a heart of wisdom. A heart of wisdom means an understanding that goes beyond intellectual understanding beyond intellectual understanding, goes beyond mere knowledge. It implies a deep realization of the transient nature of human existence and an aspiration to live our life with purpose, reverence, and instead an alignment with God's will. And it involves the recognition of the importance of each day and the need to live it righteously. So what, is it, what does this mean? It's the kind of knowledge, the kind of wisdom that Moses is talking about here is not intellectual, it's relational. It's relational. The wisdom isn't based on what you know or on what you do. It's based in who you know and in who knows you. So why is this important? Let me, let's get practical for a minute. Look at me at verse eight. He says, he, he talks about secret sins being uh, revealed in the presence of the light of God. Now, when we see secret sins, it, it, it's true that, that he's talking about the things that we know we're doing that nobody else knows we're doing. All right, secret sins, they're a secret to us. But that's not, that's not really all it's talking about. He's also talking about secret sins that are so secret that you don't even know you have them. All right? Did you know that we are so fallen, we are so broken, 
that you have secret sins, that you can sit at the end of the day for hours and confess all the things you know, and guess what? You still will have unconfessed sin. It's how deep brokenness is. It's how deep sin is. And so there are secret sins in us that only God sees, that we are incapable because we're just ants on a marble of doing anything about. And we need the person of God to reveal these things and make us holy. So at the beginning of the year, on January 1st, for some reason, I, it wasn't super spiritual. I just, I saw it on a Christmas card that one of you sent me. So it's your fault. Uh, Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew within me a right spirit. And I saw that and I just felt like that's a verse that I wanna pray every day this year. And, and I didn't think about, um, you know, they say don't pray for patience. You know, you don't think about that because you'll get what you pray for, you know. And, uh, and so, but I started praying, praying that. And it wasn't, I didn't have anything big in my life that I thought, well, I really need my heart cleaned from this besides just, you know, the, the general idea of being a sinner. And, and so I started praying that. And what I've, what I've uh, concluded this year, this summer, is that May 1st was God's answer to that prayer. He answered it five months in. And uh, because there was a secret sin in my heart that I didn't even see. And the secret sin is that I believe I was finding identity in my activity rather than in the person of God. And what I've learned is that my value is not in my activity for God, but in God, the person of God. And that's it. You say, well, that's so simple. I thought you were gonna come and just kind of give this really deep. It's that simple. That's what the Lord, I believe, has shown me. So I've been reading this book called The Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross. And I wanna read a quote that I think kind of illustrates what I mean for those of us who might be thinking, okay, what does this mean for me? How do I apply this to my life? St. John, he references Exodus 33, 5, which uh, is, is a passage that talks about how God is calling the nation of Israel to take off their festive garments because he wants them to see who they really are. He wants them to see that they're dust. And, and it says, to make you merit no more that you may know who you are. And on page 31 of this book that I've been reading, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, a heavy quote, but let me read this. And it's in like old King James language, so I hope it makes sense. It says, wherefore the soul knows the truth that it knew not at first. He's talking about why God puts us into dark nights of the soul, concerning its own misery. For at the time when it was clad as for a festival, let me tell you in the context of the Southern Baptist Convention, one of the the greatest garments that can be laid on you is for the convention to try to offer you some opportunity to serve. It's, It's the idea of this festival garment. For at that time when it was clad as for a festival and found in God much pleasure, consolation and support, it was somewhat more satisfied and contented since it thought itself to some extent to be serving God. But now that the soul has put on its other attire, the dark night, it considers itself now as nothing and experiencing no satisfaction in itself for it sees that it does nothing of itself, neither can it do anything. Now listen to this. And the smallness, 
of this self-satisfaction together with the soul's affliction at not serving God is considered and esteemed by God as greater than all the consolations which the soul formerly experienced and the works it wrought, however great they were, inasmuch as they were the occasion of many imperfections and ignorances. And then he says this, God gives to those whom he leads into this dark night humility and readiness, albeit with lack of sweetness. Why? So that what is commanded them, they may do for God's sake alone. For God's sake alone. In other words, Lord, you are our dwelling place. You are our dwelling place. God, that's it. Not all the things I do for you, not all the activity, not all the festival garments. Lord, you by yourself alone, that's it. The person of God alone is our dwelling place. I had a friend text me this summer. And he says this, he says, I'm wondering what the Spirit's up to in you by allowing you to walk through the things that you've been going through the last few months. It it seems to me that God may have something unique in store for you. And let me tell you how I responded. My response was this, I've learned this summer that my problem is thinking that God has unique stuff for me. I'm a millennial. We think that we're world changers. We think we're God's gift to to creation. That's how we were raised to believe. And we just think we're gonna change the world. You know what? I just think that's just such an unbiblical way of viewing life. Life is not about unique experiences about me. It's, it's about our unique Lord. That's it. We're dust with God's breath in us. We're grass with God's breath in us, but we're dust that God loves and has given value. And isn't that good enough? Isn't that good enough? And it's under this light that he ends the psalm by saying, let this favor of our Lord God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands, which is about activity. But notice how he says it. Don't rush past it at the beginning of verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord not be through us, but upon us. It's just the relational wisdom that we have that God is Lord. The person of God is enough. Now, Here's why this is important and we'll close and be done. If the person of God is not enough for you, then you will find your identity and your affirmation in what you do for him in your job, in your money, in in whatever, uh, your sports team, whatever. You're gonna find your identity in those things. And here's what's gonna happen is when, when things start to happen in the world where moths and rust Uh, come to eat and destroy and decay, you're gonna do all the things you can to protect this thing because that is your identity. All this activity, Lord, I need to protect all these things I'm doing for you, God. Uh, And guess what? You're even gonna come to the point where you may even start breaking the commandments of the Lord to protect yourself so that you can continue doing things for the Lord. By the way, there were a bunch of people in the New Testament who killed Jesus and thought they were doing God a favor. And so it's because the person of God wasn't enough. They found their identity in following God's commandments before they found their identity in the relationship with the Lord. So knowing that the person of God is enough gives us the confidence to live in such a way where we know that if we lose everything, we lose nothing because we already have everything in him. It's a powerful way of living. It's a powerful way of living. So if you're listening, tuning in, if you're here today and you're thinking, man, I want that, Pastor Jared. I need that relationship with the Lord we wanna invite you to take the first step, which is to go to our website, tatesprings.com and click the button, I want to know more about Jesus. And we'll follow up with you and talk with you about what that means. For those of us who do have that relationship with Jesus, uh, what we're gonna do is we're gonna enter into this time of invitation. We're we're gonna enter into the Lord's Supper together. Uh, The presence of the Lord is in this place with the Lord's Supper. 
And, uh, and so there's a song that the, that the worship team is, is gonna sing, which I've requested called Song in the Night. It's a song that meant a lot to me this summer from Shane and Shane's album, Songs, Hymns, and Spiritual, Psalms, Hymns, and Spiritual Songs. And there's a couple of lines I want you to listen to. The words should be on the screen. Um, I will cling to the lover of my soul. I mean, that's deep. Deep calls to deep, the psalmist writes. And I will let go of the rudder in the storm. The rudder is that thing that orients the ship. And so Carrie Underwood, you know, had it right. And she's talking about the steering wheel, you know, the, the deep theologian Carrie Underwood, right? We, we live a life where we try to hold on and tell God, this is the way I'm taking my life. And God is the one who says, no, I want you to walk up that mountain and whatever it is I want to call you to sacrifice, even if it doesn't go through, just be faithful because it's me. And that's what a life of success looks like. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your good word in Psalm 90. May we, Lord, think about you and find our dwelling place in our nomadic lives in you, with you. And may your favor be upon us, Lord. May we live radical lives for you, not because we want to do radical things and try to change the world, Lord, but because you are enough. So Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would be with Tate Springs as we continue walking on the journey that we've been in. And help us to know you. Thank you for knowing us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. At Tate Springs, we believe God is telling a story of redemption that can only be found in Jesus Christ. If you'd like more information on how you can have that kind of a relationship, please visit tatesprings.com and let us know. We love you and want to help you discover your part in God's story.